It was 1903 when California citrus farmer Daida Beveridge gave up a dirt intersection in her lemon grove as the site of a church for local German Methodists. The intersection came to be known as Prospect Avenue and Wise Avenue. That is, until 1910, when the city of Los Angeles annexed the town of Hollywood and renamed the streets Hollywood and Vine. By the 20s, as Hollywood's movie industry exploded, many a farm and orchard were plowed under to make way for studios and backlots. Hollywood and Vine became the second busiest intersection, after Wilshire Boulevard and Western Avenue. As Hollywood's reputation grew, wannabe movie stars would patrol the intersection in hopes of being discovered. Of those lucky enough to land acting jobs, most worked as background actors or extras. In 1922, it's reckoned that 30,000 background actors packed Hollywood, with not nearly enough work to support them. Wannabe actors were abused and exploited. From these ugly corners of the industry came a new legend of the notorious Hollywood casting couch. Gossip in stories took root and blossomed into scandal. To ward off calls for government regulation of the film industry, Hollywood's producers agreed to form the Central Casting Corporation, an organized, unified office through which background actors could be hired. Day after day, frantic calls would come in from producers seeking support players, needed, Irish cop, absent-minded professor, dowager, town drunk. From this came a new expression, straight out of central casting, a phrase that quickly became popular outside the film industry, describing someone who embodies a character archetype. Over the years, a number of actors surrendered any idea of playing a leading role, or of building a reputation for versatility, and opted instead to carve out a tidy living playing the same character type over and over. Nice girl, Mary. Mm -hmm. Kind that'll help you find the answers, George. Beulah Bondi's distinguished career is marked by her recurring role as Jimmy Stewart's mother, notably in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life, adding color and dimension to the star. Oh, that mother old building alone pal, I think I'll go out and find the girl and do a little passionate knacking. You're right, son. You see what I mean, don't you, Pop? This town is no place for any man unless he's willing to crawl to Potter. Now, you've got talent, son. I've seen it. Her screen husband in the latter was Lewis Stone, a veteran of the Spanish-American War and prematurely gray. When his time as a leading man passed its best-before date, he became the ultimate wise, kind screen dad and the original Judge Hardy, the perfect dad for a young hero to play off. Pop, you want a shock? I think you're a great guy. Why, did you hear that, Annie? I heard it's about time one of you lunkheads said it. Many actors rose to the top of their niche. If you needed the central casting leprechaun-like Irishman, Barry Fitzgerald played the stereotype so precisely, you'd wonder if he was real. Ah, nonsense, man. It's only a mirage brought on by your terrible thirst. 
<laughs> the most delicious of food I've eaten in my life. You're very kind, but you did most of the cooking. Yes, I know. <laughs> to casting directors, they were indispensable. To millions of filmgoers and TV viewers, they might be known simply as that woman with the laugh or the loudmouth uncle. A generation ago, the nutty Italian role belonged to San Francisco-born character actor Vito Scotti, equally at home as a barber, a baker, a tailor, or a painter. Not always I like to stay five days in one room. Oh, no, some house. Oof. I like to do five rooms in one a day. <laughs> fast. You think that's fast? In Italy, I was working for Mussolini. The whole palace, one hour. <laughs> they are actors who found their niche, or their niche found them. And they're nestled, they've made their career. In that sense, the players aren't a lot different in the world of marketing where I live. There are lead brands, secondary brands, many of whom aspire to the lead, then there are niche players. Each has carved a very specific, often very narrow role for itself in the marketplace. Yet over the past two decades, the mainstream brands, the lead actors of the marketing world, have begun to vanish. Niche brands, those with narrower appeal, are becoming the dominant players. My name is Terry O'Reilly. Join me over the next few minutes and I'll explain why the stars of marketing are fast giving way to the bit players in the age of persuasion. I want chicken, I want liver. I want a bottle of Coca-Cola, Donnie. That's us. I see me the ball. Hey, great. A toothpaste good bite, Captain. I can't believe I ate that whole Magic bullet. The personal, versatile countertop magician. And now, Terry O'Reilly and the Age of Persuasion. There you go again. Here in the Age of Persuasion reading room, our dusty old copy of the Oxford Book of Word Histories has this to say about the word niche. Seems it dates back to early 17th century France and means recess from the word niche, meaning make a nest. Two centuries later, it was used, in English, to mean a place suited to one's capabilities. In the 1960s, it came to describe a position from which an entrepreneur can exploit a gap. And that's where we come in. <coughs> Why is niche marketing so popular? while mainstream, one-size-fits-all brands are becoming scarce. For my money, it begins with media, which today has so few one-size-fits-all portals. TV, print, and the Internet are dominated by thousands of specialty offerings, which encourage, even require, advertisers to speak to very specific audiences, which creates some head-turning possibilities. Every day, Sally Beaver rode her log up and down the river. One day, another beaver appeared on the riverbank and asked if Sally would like to join her. Sally had always been curious about what it was like on the other side, and this was her chance to find out. She dove in and started swimming, but quickly got tired and the other beaver had to dive in and help her. 
They were very happy to meet each other, and once on the shore, the excited wet beavers tried furiously rubbing each other dry. But before long, they were tired and puffing. They weren't getting any drier either, so they lay down in the sun and went to sleep. The Elwood, Tales of Lesbian Life and Love. Premieres Tuesday, 9.30pm. It's on Prime. That spot promotes The L Word on Prime TV in New Zealand, one of more than two dozen countries to air the show, which is shot in Vancouver. It diffuses some remarkably risque copy with a pastoral flute and a matronly children's story style, which provides cover for its many spring-loaded metaphors. Mary Mouse was sitting at home when there was a knock at the door. Who could it be? she asked as she went to answer it. When she opened the door, it was her neighbour, Lucy Mouse. Hello, Lucy Mouse, said Mary. Hello, Mary Mouse, said Lucy. I've got a nice, moist muffin. Would you like some? It's still warm. It was exactly what Mary felt like. So she asked Lucy Mouse in and ate her muffin right there in the hallway. She liked eating Lucy's muffin and enjoyed every mouthful. And this made Lucy Mouse feel so good that she made a quiet, happy sound to herself. The L Word. Tales of lesbian life and love. Premieres Tuesday, 9.30pm. It's on Prime. As outing gradually loses its stigma, entrepreneurs are fast filling the gay, lesbian, bi media niche with newspapers, magazines, websites and radio stations, which opens up a rainbow of advertising possibilities. Could you imagine, in the 60s, an episode of Don Messer's Jubilee punctuated with a message like this? Fancy yourself as a martina or a bit of a rafter? Big Tennis is a gay and lesbian tennis association who hold regular tournaments and social tennis games. They welcome all skill levels and provide a friendly social environment while playing the game you love. Go to victennis.com. New media, such as Australia's Joy 94 FM, are creating safe haven niches for advertisers, such as a gay lesbian tennis association, to promote businesses that would have been seen as six exits past acceptable in the olden days. Growing up in Sudbury, we like to tell the story of what Canadian television was like in the 60s. Snow, 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 Tommy Hunter, more snow. Hard to believe the sun could still rise over such a world. Today, if you took all the TVs that line the wall of a big box store like this and run a different channel on each, you wouldn't come close to accounting for the number of specialty channels. Which explains why so many advertisers have split and specialized and scattered into market niches. Of the hundreds of cable channels available on this continent, there are stations dedicated to animation, comedy, weather, wine, the military, jewelry shopping, travel, and German folk music videos. Specialty magazines come and go by the hundreds. There are hundreds of satellite radio channels, each with its niche. And on the internet? Well, a Google of offerings. While no one is sure, one estimate suggests there could be 550 trillion web pages out there, with more than 7 million added daily. 
There is no one or two or three destination networks anymore. No one place to park just to see what's on. Television has gone from push to pull. Like the internet, you have to go looking for the channel, the program you want. It's a spectacular contrast to life just a few decades ago, where a 12-channel TV dial was plenty, and on a given night, everybody, give or take, would be tuned, literally, to the same channel. And now, here he is, Ed Sullivan! Thank you, Greg. There wasn't much trick to knowing what the water cooler chatter would be come the next morning. With a small handful of TV networks, and with so few radio stations to go around, it was pretty easy to guess what the mass audience would be buzzing about. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! CBC, for family entertainment. Times was, big networks cast a wide net. Family viewing meant an entire family might sit together, yes, in the same room, and watch the same TV program at the same time. In those pre-niche days of one-size-fits-all television, TV marketing was a very different beast. Television wasn't marketed show to show as it is so often now. A TV network would market itself as a destination. Hands up and step away from the TV guide. Tune in and trust us. This fall, we've got a lot to share. New shows, favorite shows, stars who will brighten your nights. So come on, let's get together. We got a lot to share. Hey, I think I still have that LP. Television for Everyone created an advertising vehicle for brands made for everyone. I was always hoping to see Africa, Corny. I hope you can see it while we're running, boss. A few of the old universal brands still exist. Cereals such as Cheerios and Corn Flakes avoid niches and pigeonholes, relying on consistency, simplicity, and in this case, the sultry voice of niche character actor Andy Devine. As media moves to the niches, marketers and advertisers are headed there too. Why? because experience has shown that the products hatched in the niches of marketing can, and do, change the world. My name is Terry O'Reilly, and this is the Age of Persuasion. Chicken and egg question for you. Was Henry Ford a niche marketer? Sure, it was Henry Ford who revolutionized mass production. For our purpose, it was Ford who, on October 1, 1908, launched the Model T. Unlike the cars that many, including Ford, had worked on previously, it was simple to drive and cheap and easy to repair. 
It sold for $825. That's somewhere north of $18,000 of today's dollars. By 1914, the price dropped to nearly half of that. Ford, more than anyone, popularized the automobile by making it affordable and accessible to the working folk. In doing so, he filled an enormous niche. And no, since you're asking, I do not consider enormous niche to be an oxymoron, like civil war or legal brief or personal computer. A client once said to me that niche means a small nook or cranny and that he had no interest in niche ideas, but rather big ones. I respectfully disagree. I believe a niche, in the marketing sense, is a unique opportunity or an ideal position. While Ford didn't invent the automobile, he found a niche that made it indispensable to so much of the world. Enough so that there was a Henry Ford for President buzz in the 1920s, a proposition that didn't escape the wit of Will Rogers. Toastmasters, gentlemen, you too, politicians, the Democrats are the middle of the road party, the automotive category is one of the best and most prominent illustrations of the trend towards niche marketing. A century after the automobile graduated from niche to necessity, Today's models come in all imaginable shapes and sizes to satisfy different tastes. More recently, those niches have become more interesting, and so have their ads. A Silver Lion winner at the 2007 Cannes Advertising Festival was an unusual campaign for the Mercedes Smart Car. It was the kind of spot creative people love, and media people hate because it goes beyond the norms of the medium and can be tricky to execute. Just as the smart car fills a niche among urban drivers for minimalist, easy-to-park vehicles, the ads, most less than a second, were parked between other ads. When one ad ended, this. Smart. Another full-length ad, then. Smart. Another ad, then. Smart. And finally, Near the end of the commercial set, this. Smart. Fits in every space. It's clever in the way it uses a media metaphor to illustrate the diminutive charm of the smart car, yet disturbing in the way it adds three, four, or five more pieces of ad clutter to a normal commercial break. Nowadays, automobiles are especially ripe for niche models, designed to inspire and surprise. And if they get that part right, the product itself does the persuading. All their advertising has to do is tell the story and step out of the way. Wow, is this yours? It's an Aptera. <laughs> That's a very odd looking car. Yeah. Why, why would you drive? It gets 300 miles per gallon. What? I get 300 miles per gallon. I'm sorry, what? 300 miles on a gallon of gas. I'm, I'm having a... I'm sorry. 300 MPG. Um, what? 300... You're a liar. No. You're lying. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Uh -uh. Yeah. No, you are. No. No? No. 
So, in a year, how much would you say you Compared would... to my last car, I save about 3,000. <clears throat> Every year? Yeah. That... Go to aptera.com. A-P-T-E-R-A.com. Could I sit in that? Sure. <sighs> you know, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah. This must have been really expensive. Not really. Not really. No. No. Major brands, many of which began as niche products, are, themselves, splitting off into specialty brands. The trade term is brand extension, a kind of son-of version of a parent brand. Hence, Coca-Cola's many incarnations, first as Diet Coke, then Coke Zero, then Coke with lime, cherry, vanilla, or raspberry, each unique, yet each feeding on the emotional cachet of the parent brand. And something tells me the subject of brand extension will crop up another day. As conventional marketing categories become overcrowded and competition gets uglier, inventors and entrepreneurs are heading for the niches, looking for the brand idea that will resonate with consumers. Every day, thousands of people commute to UNM and battle for parking. Now they'll see a prime parking space just waiting. And then you're ready to go. It's reserved for a zip car. For instance, zip cars, an alternative to car ownership, creating a niche in the car rental category, popping up in dozens of North American urban centers. You sign up, then book a zip car for an hour or for a day, however long you need to run errands, go to a meeting, or just get away. The price includes gas, insurance, and that prime parking spot. If a niche brand doesn't capture the consumer's imagination, no amount of persuasion is going to save it. Often, that's just a matter of timing. Mia culpa. I was among the naysayers who mocked a number of inventions long since relegated to the boneyard of persuasion, including Richard Simmons' Dijon vinaigrette salad spray. Hence the great line, there's a gap in the market, but is there a market in the gap? Today, salad sprays are reappearing on supermarket shelves as gravitationally challenged baby boomers seek to eliminate fat from their diet. A decade ago, concentrated liquid detergents hit the market, but no one was buying. Today, they're finding their niche as a green product requiring less packaging and less shipping. Helping tip the scale was Walmart, who recently announced that its stores would stock nothing but concentrated detergents as part of its green initiative. And the fact it cuts warehousing and shipping costs and frees up valuable shelf space? Okay, that's just a bonus. This movement towards the niches is about more than media and brands and advertising. Consumers themselves are being divided up into unique groups. Consider Billboard charts. On July 20th, 1940, Billboard magazine published its first hit parade, Singular, a list of the most popular songs of the time. In the age of persuasion, Billboard charts, like popular media, have split into niches. Today, there are Billboard charts for rock, Top 40 Adult Contemporary, Heat Seekers Independent, Christian Gospel, Dance Electronic, Classical Jazz, there's a pairing, International, Compilation Albums, Blues, New Age, Soundtracks, Comedy, and... and just... 
whatever that is. Keith, um, do we still have that hammer? Here you go. Thanks. Ah. Like rabbits, or if you prefer, like meadow voles, a hugely successful niche product begets a huge litter of niche products of its own. Henry Ford probably didn't imagine that by popularizing the automobile, there would one day be a $250 billion industry of automotive aftermarket products and services. The car things you pay for after you buy your car. Or that portable music players would inspire specialty headphones, protective cases, faceplates, and iTunes, which began as a niche and quickly grew to become one of the world's mightiest music retailers. In my industry, a niche is an opportunity. It doesn't necessarily refer to a small market. It's only small to those who venture there first because they're so alone. Even if a niche is relatively small or limited, many still make a sizable living there provided they're unique. As one actor used to say to me, there are no small parts, just short days. The alluring thing about niches, of course, is that there are always more of them waiting to be discovered. A large battery maker once told me about a flashlight they invented that worked on any size battery. Didn't matter which batteries were rolling around in your knick-knack drawer, any two would power this new flashlight. A fantastic idea. And guess what? It didn't sell. I would have bet the house on that niche product. You never know. But the allure is never-ending. And the smart entrepreneurs and savvy marketers are finding the greatest successes by moving off the big battlefields and into the niches in the age of persuasion. Until they find their niche, Terry O'Reilly and Mike Tennant continue to squander their lives creating and writing the age of persuasion. Engineer Keith Ullman. Inside that man is an alpaca farmer screaming to get out. Title theme by Ari Posner and Ian Lefevre, who think they've found their niche in music. Yeah. The Age of Persuasion is produced for CBC Radio by Pirate Toronto.